0: God, as we open your word, we we praise you that you are sufficient, that you have worked in your son to bring salvation. And I pray, Father, we would have wisdom as we look at your word, that we would hear its truth, that we would see the implications of this great salvation. I pray we would see how it connects to every group within the church, and that we would see that we have grace that abounds for us to live by your word. I pray that you would give me wisdom as I seek, Lord, now to preach, and I pray that you would guide my thoughts. And, Lord, I pray that I would speak what you want me to speak. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We're continuing in Titus chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Last week we got started. I'm going to review a little bit, but we're looking at godliness on display in the church. Godliness on display in the church. We we see this this truth that when, when God's word is taught and the Holy Spirit works and takes that word and changes the people that hear it, what takes place is that the sound word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, results in sound living. It takes the youngest in the church and produces healthy Christians. It takes the oldest in the church and produces healthy mentors. It allows the church to be what God designed her to be. We've we've looked at an outline here, and we're going to get to the second and third point, finish the second point and the third point today. but. But basically, what we're looking at, three focal points as we explore godliness on display in the church. The first way we started with this was to look at the framework. Look at the framework. Look under the hood, so to speak, to understand how in the world can we live according to these rules and order. You see, if we don't understand the framework, we could fall into the trap of moralism, Moralism says, be this way, live this way. A lot of people misunderstand the gospel, and they think it's simply a Christian ethic. You often hear the terminology Judeo-Christian ethic. It's a way to live by the law, a way to live by the Ten Commandments, a way to live by the golden rule. But, But the gospel is so much more. The gospel takes those who are dead and makes them alive. The gospel makes people new creations by the power of god christians come to understand we've been called to the salvation we've been called we, we read the language of chapter 1 verse 1 we've been elected we've been predestined we've been called by god and when we come into the faith we begin to understand the secrets of the family we begin to understand the mystery that while we believed on Christ, God worked beforehand. God worked bringing this about. So we're new creations. We're called. We've been regenerated. I want you to think about that which is dead has no ability to respond to the truth of chapter 2. Absolutely no ability. It, it, it reminds me of the old quote. It's been attributed to many people. Run, John, run the law demands but gives me neither feet nor hands far better news the gospel brings it bids me fly and gives me wings that's the hope of the gospel you can't live out of chapter 2 until you've experienced the reality of chapter 1 verse 1 a new creation called by god regenerated by his spirit The Spirit now indwells in us. We've been given knowledge, and now we have the capacity for the first time to grow in knowledge. So how is the church going to live like the church? The Word of God must be taught. Elders must live out their calling. They must live preaching the sound Word, because in those whom God has regenerated, it is the Word of God that produces life-changing behavior i love this because this is the when paul said christ in you the hope of glory it means many different realities but one of those realities is the hope that i've been crucified with christ nevertheless not i who live but christ lives in me and the life i now live in the flesh i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself up for me so the christian life now takes on a whole new meaning so we explore and look at the framework but now we started in chapter two looking at the behavior let's go back and review quickly what we've looked at older men the older men in the church and i think that we're safe to say anybody 40 and up anybody around 40 and up god calls you to be sober-minded dignified self-controlled sound in faith love and steadfastness I was reviewing some of these word meanings, sober minded. It's a state of mind. A lexicon says free from excessive influence, the excessive influence of passion, lust, or emotion. I love that. Free from the excessive influence of passion, lust, or emotion. A man that is governed in his life and in his will by the Holy Spirit. He's sober minded, he's dignified. If you've been around a dignified, godly man, his life is attractive, it's reputable, it's godly, it's proper. The, the opposite, the antonym of the word dignified would mean you've been around older people before who are improper and arrogant. Not a, not a, not a great sight. It's like think of like when you have dignified men they act in a certain way when you have undignified men regardless of their age they act in a way that is immature and filled with folly. The third one is self-controlled. And this one while similar to sober-minded, it speaks about the sound mind. He's not foolish. He's not rash. He's not mindless. He's sound in three different areas. He's sound in faith, the practical faith of the Christian life. He's sound in love. He's sound in steadfastness. He endures trials. And then we move from older men. And then Paul says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Older women, reverent, sacred, not slanderers. It's, it's it's scary to think of the implications here. But do you know what the word, some people recognize this word, or I wouldn't tell it to you, but it's the word diabolos. Diabolos is the word used for Satan. Satan always cast against. You know what slandering does? It casts through. It divides. When we slander, we actually portray a satanic quality. Slandering is speaking against people. Slandering is falsely accusing others for no reason. Not slaves to much wine. It it speaks of they're not dependent on much wine. What the church needs by the grace of God are believers who are older that model for the younger what it looks like to walk with Christ. If you want a mark of an unhealthy congregation... You get people that are, while up in years, have no wisdom in the Christian life. And their life is fleshly. Their life is lived by pursuits of passion, pursuits of lust. It's like the, rather than be guided by the Holy Spirit, it's middle-aged men who are going through midlife crises who, rather than walk yielded to the Spirit, live after the whims of their flesh trying to figure out life in old age. What a drastic difference. Paul says, no, the word of God that's sound, the word of God that's healthy takes people. Isn't it encouraging that God, through the power of his son, works out people who once were opposed to his will, who once were arrogant, who once were callous, who once were unlearned, and who once lived after the passions of their flesh, and by the Holy Spirit, they begin to be trained in walking with Him, and now are called to live in such a way where the body of Christ, younger men, younger women see examples of what it means to walk with Christ. Older women, not reverent in behavior, not slanders, nor slaves to much wine, teaching what is good. They teach what is good. And it speaks, I think, not only of the faith, the faith that was once and for all, delivered to the saints, they teach a sound doctrine. But they teach what is good and they specifically now he moves into the category of the younger women they train young women I I love this because uh, when when we first had children we had no clue that there was gonna be six in our family but I remember going we were first married and didn't have any kids yet and, and there was a couple that we would go over and eat dinner with occasionally and here they were, and they had two kids that were, we didn't have any children yet, and we were watching them in the home. They weren't pretending to be those that needed to teach us anything. But what we watched, they modeled for us the very things that we began to grow in as parents. It's like when, when, when women are having issues and older women in the church have been there. They've walked that road. And, and when life happens within a, the body of Christ, younger women are learning what it means to be uniquely created a woman for the glory of God. And society, ladies, would say if you want to have a life that has meaning, run from having children, pursue a career, and go after all that you can get, and be bitter with all of the ugly effects of horrible... You think about... Think about the most negative impacts of an ungodly feminism that's taught in the world. Ladies, if you want to get a biblical understanding of a woman, you're created in the image of God. You're you're heirs of life along with the man. I mean, you are created in a way of beauty and design and purpose but if you go to ungodly sources to find your value remember something they've rejected the creator and they've rejected the creator's design isn't it interesting that a lot of the voices that impact young women are voices that have no desire to follow after god many of them are naturalists many of them deny any creator and so now young women are tempted to believe if I'm going to have meaning, I need to pursue a career. If I'm going to have meaning, I need to get out of the home and be liberated. And yet God's word tells us that he has designed the home with the unique touch of a woman to be an influencer and shaper in a handling of affairs within a home that no man can ever accomplish on his own. A woman that is designed by God to live for his glory and older women in the church that understands the value of teaching young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, to be pure. Working at home. We looked at that last time the priority of their life is not a career The priority of their life is their home and they recognize that is a unique calling one with significant ramifications kind submissive to their own husbands they respect God's form and function again It speaks so much into the current confusion that there are genders we are created by God with the purpose gender is not fluid it's not something we figure out once we're born we're either created male or we're created female if we're created male god has purpose and design if we're created female god has order design and purpose and creativity in the way god has created you ladies and to reject your gender is to reject the creative design of god's glory it's a greater issue than finding yourself it's a greater issue than living out your dreams and desires it is an issue of claiming to be wise people became fools rejecting the creator and serving the creative order the creation but he says younger men now we're jumping into younger men and the only thing he tells him, he says, younger men, be self-controlled. It's the same word used of older men, the second one, not self-controlled, but the one sound mind, or actually the second word, not sound mind, but self-controlled. It's a word that comes up a lot. It's the Greek word sophron. And it, and it speaks again of the soundness of life. I came across something in my study of this that I think is worth mentioning. And I, w- I was reading... Um, that's Votie Bauckham's thought thoughts on Titus chapter 2, and I think he makes a wise point that many other people make. It's not an original thought. Many scholars over the years have brought it out, but I think he's right on the money. Why is the list for younger men so short? I think there's a reason. Younger men are to follow godly men, and what is the list for godly men in the book of Titus? Help me out. This is the interactive portion of today's sermon. What do you think? Help me out, y'all can sober-minded. Sober minded. Where would the li- where is there a list of traits for older men that is extensive that younger men are to emulate in the book of Titus? It's not found in Titus chapter two, Titus chapter one. And what were the remember those verses? Go back and look with me, verses five through verse nine. What was that? The characteristics of elders. So, so if you want to know what young men talking to my. You know, 13 and up group, 13 to 20 group, do you want to know how God desires for you to live under the power of his spirit? God desires for you to be above reproach, ultimately and eventually the husband of one wife. What does that mean? Not flirtatious, but committed and loyal and faithful to the woman that God brings in your wife if he leads you to marriage. He wants you to be what? He wants you to be not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. What happens normally when a young man goes off to college, Alabama, Auburn, Georgia, Mississippi State? Ah, let them be young. They're going to go explore their freedom, and they get just trash drunk in fraternity parties. No, 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 no. If you're a believer in Christ, you know what you're called to do? Emulate the older men. And how are the older men called to live? The older men are called to live, not in some debauchery, but they're to live how? In a way of, of, of respect and, and godliness, in a way of being sober-minded. And then he goes on, he must be above reproach, not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, violent, greedy for gain, hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, Holding fast to the trustworthy word is taught. And I get it that there's some unique parts of that list that apply to the pastor, but so much of that list applies simply to the character of a godly man who's to live. And a younger man is supposed to live looking at older men. And here he sums it up with self-controlled, self-controlled. And then he speaks to Titus. And and so this plays off of it, because Titus, acting as part of these elders, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity. Show yourself. um, It means to hold out towards someone. Display it. Remember James says, show me by your works. When he's talking about faith and relationship to works, he says, show me by your works. It's the idea of hold it out. Let it be on display. Show yourself in all respects. What does that mean? All respects. It means in totality. I, uh, Usually the uh, the game that I take my kids to, if I have a chance, is Vanderbilt, because Georgia plays Vanderbilt, and because Vanderbilt's such a team that doesn't typically win, tickets are cheaper. And it all worked out. They really messed me up, though, when they went digital. When there was paper tickets, you could get free tickets to the Georgia Vandy game every year, you just get there and walk around confused, and they'll give you tickets. And uh, somebody would say, I've got four, they can't sell them, here, take them. Now it's really hard, but late Friday night, I came across somebody, and, and I was like, I can beat what's on StubHub or SeatGeek. I can really beat this, because I, I found some ways to look for tickets. And, and, and a guy called me up Saturday morning, and he says, I was like, how much do you want? He said, $100 a ticket. And I'm thinking, there is no way I'm paying $100 a ticket to the Georgia Vanderbilt game. We well, called me back three minutes later, and he says, you can have them. I'm like, that's more like it. <laughs> and uh, he, 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 he texted me the information, I got the info and so I went there and 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 we got there we were on row 68 it is the most confusing mess you have ever seen they are doing construction at Vanderbilt and it is a nightmare there's end zones with cranes and you had to walk through a maze to get to the stadium we had to walk through Memorial Coliseum just to get it was unbelievable the chaos we get to our seats we're on row 68 well my buddy JJ is uh, he does better with tickets than I do. He's on the second row on the 50. And he's like, hey, man, just, just hang loose. I, these people are going to leave. I know they are. And, and he calls me right up before the half. He goes, come on down. Come on, come on. So we, we make our way to the 50-yard line on the second row, and we're sitting right behind Georgia's bench. And what was so neat about it is that the, the, the stands are right on the field. So the Georgia players are, like, right on the front row from where I'm sitting. And, and their defensive coordinator is meeting with the defense right there. And so I can hear the defensive coaches, Muschamp and Schumann, are sitting like right in front of me. And, and to the point to where when people pull out their phones, they get mad at them for taking pictures. They didn't want them taking pictures. So they had a board, and you could see them looking at You could see what they were telling the DBs to do. You could see how they were adjusting the coverages. And here's what you pick up on watching that, whether it's any school you like and you look at coaches they want that team in consistency and totality to play a certain type of football. And when they don't, they call them out on it. They show them what they're doing. I want you to see this. In life, the gospel of Jesus Christ is to affect our life in totality, not just at church, not just when you're preaching, Titus, not just when you're with the people in the congregation. Show yourself in all respects a model of good works. What what an impact for young men, by God's grace, to be around leaders in a church who emulate a desire for Christ to be glorified and honored in what they do in their leisure, in their hobbies, in their parenting, in their interaction with with fast food workers in a drive-through, in their dealings with community people A totality means that discipleship of the word has affected our life down to the very fragments, down to the entire spokes of the wheel, in every category you could come up with. In your life, show yourself in all respects a model of good works. But isn't it sad? And we're all, we can't point a finger because there's three coming back at us but how we can understand the fleshly tendency to do what to fragment our lives and when we think about living godly we think about putting on a front and we think about putting on a show and all of a sudden you got teenagers that are one way at youth group and completely different at school you got people that are deacons in a church but don't get to know them on business trips you get people that don't see this but again this is not pointing fingers this is pointing to the hope of the grace of god that enables an individual by his grace to live in all respects sound why sound teaching affects sound living in all respects titus you model good works in all things so many passages here look at uh, first timothy four twelve with me real quick just go short over uh, left to first timothy chapter 4 verse 12 listen to what he says to young timothy let no one despise you for your youth but set the believers an example in speech in conduct in love in faith in purity an example to be imitated I remember hearing as a young man that you could not be a healthy leader until you were an effective follower. And what it meant was simply this, until you are an active follower of Jesus, you can never effectively lead others. And that's why Paul could say, emulate me, follow me. Um, Look at 1 Peter 5.3, which points back to the idea that the characteristic list for elders applies to young men to emulate. Look what he says to the elders, Peter In 1 Peter 5, verse 3, speaking, I'm jumping in the middle of uh, characteristics of how elders are to lead. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being what? Examples to the flock. Being an example, model of good works, a model of good works. And then Titus says, and in your teaching. How is he to teach? He says, show integrity show dignity, and then he says, sound speech that cannot be condemned. People debate here, is he only speaking about his speaking as he preaches God's word? That seems to be the primary emphasis. But others have noted over the centuries that this seems to be not only in the way he handles himself in the pulpit, but the way he handles his speech in general and in your teaching, there's, a, there's, there's something going on here that is unique about the way the minister handles the word of God. He's to handle it in a way of seriousness. He's not to be flippant. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the famous preacher from London, he said it like this, I confess freely, I cannot understand a jocular evangelist. Go back and read the lives of the men whom God has used in the mightiest manner, and you will find invariably find that they were serious men, sober men, men with the fear of the Lord in them. And D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was saying it bothered him when somebody used the pulpit in nothing but a humor show. He says, no, when you when you speak, Let it show the the serious nature and the soberness of what you're dealing with. And in your teaching, show integrity. Uh, There's a seriousness here. Uh, Integrity, not to mix in his teaching, anything that would in any way deprive the teaching, it says here, of its eternal value, to be regulated to second place relegated to second place. There's a dignity. That's the idea of seriousness. Show integrity. Show dignity. And then he says, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. The way we speak, how do we speak to others? It's, it's, it's humbling, isn't it, to think about The way we speak illustrates who we are. Jesus said it, obviously, as our Lord and Savior. He said it the best. He's the one who says everything the best. And what did he say? That out of the heart, an individual speaks. When a person speaks, they illustrate their heart. If you want to know a window into somebody, watch how they speak. I never understood that uh, growing up. I remember wisdom my mom and dad would give me. I remember they would tell my sister, they'd say, look, Stephanie, be careful because if you ever like a guy, watch how he talks to his mom. That will reveal who he is. Watch how he speaks. And I used to think, "Nah, it's not really true. How do you know who they really are? But I didn't understand this principle. It's true. It's not just true of wisdom to a young girl who's dealing with that whole issue of, of dating. It's true about leaders, and he's saying, Titus, Live and understand the implications of your word. Sound speech that is not condemned. But then he gets into another category. What have we seen so far? We've gone from older men, older women, younger women, younger men, Titus. And now he uses the word bondservants. It's hard for us to understand this part of Titus 2 because it's not the reality that we have lived in. I found this fascinating and looking up um, more information here. In the first century, one out of three people in Rome and one in five elsewhere was a slave. One in three in Rome. And Tony Morita says, a person could become a slave as a result of capture in war, default on a debt... Inability to support, voluntary, voluntarily selling oneself, being sold as a child by destitute parents, birth to slave parents, conviction of a crime, kidnapping, piracy, He goes on to say, unlike the slavery that arose in the Americas in the 1600s, slavery in the ancient world was racially indiscriminate, cutting across racial, social, and national lines. I I like some of the things that he says, and just quickly, in a broad way, I think he says it really well. I'm going to use what he wrote. Five areas, he says. He says, the Bible regulates but does not ordain or require slavery, obviously. Number two, Paul taught that if you can gain your freedom then go for it, 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 24. Number three, the New Testament sowed the seed for the unmasking of slavery for the sin that it is and for its eventual destruction. The New Testament, the Bible regulates it, does not ordain or require it. Number two, if you can gain your freedom, go for it. Number three, The New Testament sows the seed for the unmasking of slavery for the sin that it is and its eventual destruction. Number four, how does scripture call people dealing with it to primarily act? It attacks the evil of it with the beauty of the gospel, the grace of God, and the ethic of love, not through bloodshed or rebellion. And number five, Paul turned the tables on the institution of slavery, placing it in eternal perspective. He he completely confounds the way that people could have thought, and he turns it into an eternal perspective. All that being said, how should we look at it? Should we just check out right now, say we'll get through this part, it doesn't apply to us? A lot of people have said that while the parallel is not exact, we can look at the employee-employer relationship and, and gain some principles here. I think they're right. I think there's some applications. He says, bond servants, be submissive to their own masters. Now, when we think of this word submissive, it's that word that means to, uh, to fall in order. And it, re- it reflects the way that we respond to authorities. It's used in the scripture many different ways. All things are submissive to Jesus. That's that word here used all things submissive to Christ. Number two, uh, the younger are to be submissive to their elders. But then we see broader categories. Bond servants are to be submissive to their masters. We also find that in Ephesians, we're to submit to one another, male and female, submission to one another in the body of Christ. It's also used of submission to governing authorities. But here it's used of well, it's here it's used of bond servants, but earlier we saw how it's used of marriage, of wives to husbands. And he says, you be submissive to your masters in everything. Turn with me real quick to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We see a principle here that if we can understand it would really help us with the way we think about living the christian life in the context of the ordinary and the mundane and the everyday and and he says some paul says something in colossians three twenty two. 22 bond servants obey in everything those who your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers but with sincerity of heart fearing the lord whatever you do work heartily as for the lord and not for men knowing that from the lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward now here is the principle that i pray we all can see and understand you are serving the lord christ in the same way that when bond servants out of love for jesus christ trusted god in their circumstances and treated with submission in the way they acted towards their master. They were serving the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that as it relates to your work and your vocation. Uh, If we're not careful, we'll see the implications of this in a minute. If we're not careful, we downplay this, and people that are professing Christians begin to be backbiting of their boss they begin to be critical of his incompetence or her incompetence. They begin to be really s- sarcastic. And think about it, he's saying, no, understand that your job is an outlet for you, or here he's talking about your condition as a slave is an outlet for you to proclaim the truth and be a witness to the light of the gospel and that a principle would apply in the workplace. He's saying, look, we could gain from this He says to do what? Be well-pleasing. Don't be argumentative. Don't embezzle or be pilfering and show all good faith. Be well-pleasing. It just sounds just like it it means just what it sounds like. Be acceptable. Please the one who has authority over you. Um, Be of cheerful service. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 if 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 they're believing masters they should serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Don't be argumentative. Don't argue, don't talk back, don't uh, Stephen Cole says don't talk back, mouth off, run him down behind his back. And he says, but it is always wrong to oppose the boss or hassle him. Cheerful compliance without arguing should be a Christian employee's normal response. Not pilfering. Don't steal. Don't keep back something which belongs to another. But show all good faith. Show all good faith. Let it be the way in which you live. Listen to Ephesians here. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters in chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 5 and 6. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. You could look again at Colossians 3, 1 Timothy chapter 6. I remember a good buddy of mine, Curtis, he said one time, he said, you know, so many missionaries, they go overseas, and the only way they can be in those countries is by having a creative access platform. Remember when Tim could see those that have been at Riverside for years when he was here, he talked about there's people in the Mideast that run coffee shops. Why? That's their creative access platform to share the light of Christ. Let me ask you this. What is your vocation? What do you do? You you, you could name that in your mind right now. That is your creative access platform for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought of it like that? A lot of people don't. They think of their Christian life separated from their work life. But what Paul is saying here, if we understand the implications, it tells us never be lazy, never be filled with gossip, never be unkind, never be the professing Christian that is known being a bad example in the workplace because the gospel of Jesus Christ permeates in a way that we can't always predict and God uses the soundness of Christian people living by his word and the responses of their lives to be a light for the gospel. Number one, look at the framework. Number two, look at the behavior. But number three, look at the implications. Look at the implications. We're going to see two implications here that I want us to, to, to close with this morning. And I want you to think about what would it look like if, if, if by God's grace, the Holy Spirit, and I believe he's working here. I really do. I I see it in the lives of the people a part of this church. But let me think, let's think about it practically. I want you to think about if we put on a map, if you could see like a GPS map, and it had coordinates of every place in this town and outside of this town, in Huntsville, around this valley, where you worked, and we could see every place that we were, everywhere. And then we started thinking, what would it look like, not only in the job place, but what what would it look like in the friendships that you have in this community? What would it look like in the relationships you have through your kids' sports? You get the idea. Think about all the different impacts. Think about it in the life of the church. If older men were sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness, growing in the Word of God, the Word of God not being an end-all, but the Word of God empowering us through the Holy Spirit to be godly. What would be the impact if older men did that way? If older women were reverent, not slanderers, not known for drinking and always being up under some kind of substance of like anything that even would be looked at as acceptable, teaching what is good, training young women, what would be the impact in our community if by the grace of God our older Christian women were modeling for the younger Christian women, and I believe again that they are, I believe we all can grow in this, all of us. But this is a beautiful sense of how the gospel is displayed. If if younger women were learning how God has called them in their role to cherish it and not run from it, to embrace it and not be tempted to be despised of it, younger men self-controlled, if leaders in a church modeled what they were to be by God's grace, in the workforce, what would be the impact? I saw a uh a picture yesterday, and I was watching you know you see all these world scenes of like Gary mentioned in his before his prayer in his prayer like it feels a little bit like overwhelming looking at what's happening in france what look, look what's happening in London yesterday or two days before on Friday look at what's happening in uh even Detroit, Chicago. There's a picture she's going to put up right now. And, and, and the picture that you're going to be looking at, is it up there? Because that back TV's off maybe. Um, give me a thumbs up if it's up there. Is it up there? Okay. You see that, and, and, and you look at that, and you go, what is that? Well, that was the, uh, the pro-Palestine march in London. And, um, but that's not my point. I want you to see something. You see that, that building, that beautiful building right there with those columns? You know what that is? That is uh, All Souls Church, Langham Place. And that's the church where John Stott was the rector in the Anglican Reformed Church. That's the church where Charlie Scrine is the pastor preaching the gospel in London. And I saw that picture and I thought about the lostness portrayed in that of people that have followed Allah and have neglected Jesus as deity. And and I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's the picture of Titus 2. That's the picture of Titus 2. This morning in England, there's a group of evangelical believers meeting in London who love God's word, who love the truth, who are dealing with the implications that around them 15% of London are declaring Islam and many of them not the peaceful type. And yet, what are they to do? How are they to live in that environment? Well, right there, what they're to do is to understand the sound word, produces sound living. I read another article that made me wanna show you that picture and it was an article about how many stories of people coming out of Islam and the reason that God, how God brought them to Christianity. And so many of them said by watching the lives of the Christians around them, by seeing the genuine nature of their life in totality. And here's what Paul does. Paul says, here are the implications. He gives one in verse 7, or verse not 7, verse 4. Read verse 4. As he speaks to the young women, as the older are to teach them, so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands in order that what here's the implication the word of god may not be reviled you know what the word reviled means it means that the word of god may not be blasphemed now think of the implication here when 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 you get into a church setting and you have a church that has professing people that completely disregard the impact of the word on holiness and conduct. They go to church, and they go out in the community, and they blaspheme the very truth that they say they adhere to. They revile it. How do they revile it? Well, the implication here. He starts with young women. When young women lose sight of their calling in the church, their actions blaspheme, but the principle's broader. When older men aren't sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, steadfastness, they repel from the gospel. They dishonor the gospel. Older women can do the same thing. Younger men can do the same thing. Bond servants have the same unfortunate ability to repel people from the gospel. The word means dishonored. It's translated by some people that the word of God may not be reproachfully spoken of, that the word of God may not be exposed to reproach, that no one can speak evil of God's word, that the message of God is not disgraced. You get the idea, but I got good news for you. It doesn't have to be that way. Look at the other implication on the opposite side. Look at verse 10. And speaking to bond servants, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may what? Adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What does adorn mean? I'm glad you asked. Adorn means to garnish... To decorate, it, um, and going back to years ago in seminary, I had to listen to Stott on the pastoral epistles. He really influenced me in the way I look at this passage. And he says, the word was used of arranging jewels in order to display their beauty. And the gospel is a jewel. While a consistent Christian life is like the setting in which the gospel jewel is displayed, it can add luster to it. Isn't that a wonderful, vivid picture of the Christian life? So this morning... Listen to these last three verses, and we're going to close in prayer. 1 Peter 2, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Matthew 5. 13, you are the salt of the earth. The salt has lost its taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and you give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So this morning, look at the framework. What's behind, what's under the hood? How can this be? We have to be new creations in Christ, changed by the Spirit of God, new knowledge, growing in knowledge. Look at the behavior. Everybody in here, from the oldest to the youngest, God has called you to see the implications of the gospel in your life. But look, I'm sorry, yeah, finally, look at the implications the implications our lives can repel or our lives can attract to the beauty of the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you bow your head with me? As we close in prayer this morning, isn't it comforting to know that It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. If you're with us today as a believer and you think, wow, the Holy Spirit's convicting you that lately, maybe more than not, your life is repelling people from the gospel. Understand the kindness of God. The kindness of God is that he is faithful in conforming us into the image of his son. And this morning, he's using the sound word, He's using that word to, and to give you instruction, but also to bring kind reproof and to bring correction. And Think about the amazing reality that those that were known in a society of being gluttonous, those who were known to be pursuers of lust, Those were the people God changed to bring about holy lives, the fragrance of Christ, to adorn the gospel of Jesus. This morning, let's go to him. How is God compelling you to repent? How is he compelling you? To be thankful, how is he compelling you to follow him today? That's the question I've got for you. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that uh, this truth, that it applies to everyone here that's in Christ. And I pray, oh God, that if there are people here and they're coming to the realization that they don't know you, I pray they would see the good news of Jesus It takes people who are dead and makes them alive. And I pray today would be their day of salvation. I pray they would receive your good news by grace through faith, apart from works. Help us to grow in who you are and the knowledge of your ways. It's in Jesus' name we pray.